Hello, my friends. And welcome to another episode of the Essential Strength Podcast. This podcast is an exploration of strength in its many forms, from physical to mental, intellectual to spiritual. I am your host, David Skolnick, and it is my job to bring in people from the health and fitness industries, as well as law enforcement, research scientists, musicians, entrepreneurs, and more, and discover how strength impacts their lives, their work, and their outlook on the world. It is my belief that strength is a truly essential trait, and this show is out to prove it. So if you want to learn how to get strong, you're in the right place. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Michelle Gilpin. Michelle is a doctor of physical therapy who practices out of Evolution Healthcare and Fitness in Portland, Oregon. She is an athlete, a mother, and as a healthcare professional, she knows that there is no such thing as one-size-fits-all treatment. Michelle treats each and every one of her patients as the unique individual that they are, starting with the question, what's important to you, instead of what hurts and how long has it hurt? In today's conversation, we focus on one particular area of the body, the pelvic floor. What is it? What is its function in the holistic system of the body? What are the signs and symptoms that the pelvic floor is not functioning properly or optimally? And how can training the pelvic floor lead to enhanced performance in both sport and life? So let's not delay any longer than we need to. This is episode 40 of the Essential Strength Podcast with Dr. Michelle Gilpin. Michelle, welcome to the Essential Strength Podcast. I'm happy to have you. We've been working on getting this conversation scheduled for a while, and it's going to be different, I think, than anything else I've talked about on the show. We're talking pelvic floor, women's health, very important things. So happy Monday. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And as you can see, I'm um, doing the mom multitasking thing and trying to manage a child while doing this. So I apologize. <laughs> it'll just, you know, it'll add I'm to sorry, the intrigue. Not, so, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm a mom. I don't know. That that's... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry yep, he didn't sleep yep. his his normal amount of time, but yeah, <laughs> now, now you, all your listeners know that I have a lot of experience with public floor stuff. <laughs> Perfect. A material expert. Um, <laughs> so let's hit you with the opening question and then we can get rolling into the more specific conversation. So opening question, the one that everyone gets for you, Michelle, what is your personal definition of strength? My personal definition of strength is, is very, very functional. Um, but having the strength to do all the activities that you want to do um, and to have the strength to keep you doing those activities well into the future and well into the, um, the later years of your life. And that, that is the definition of strength for me. So strength is kind of like a foundation upon which you can build a structure, but then tear that structure down and build something else depending on what you want to do at different stages of life. Is that fairly accurate? Strength to me is to give you a base that um, will keep you from getting injured and allow you to do what you want. Gotcha. And be able to pick up anything you want to do at any point. And if you have good strength, then, and you want to go out and play soccer with your friends and you haven't done that in months, you should have the strength to be able to do that. I think that's a really good definition. That's something that 
I've been thinking about a lot lately, something that I heard Kelly Sturette talking about on a podcast recently about how often people kind of within the fitness and, and getting into shape and going to the gym tend to kind of lose the forest for the trees and they end up, you know, the gym becomes, I go to the gym so I can go to the gym. And for most people, you know, you're not a, a competitive barbell athlete or competitive athlete of any kind. And that gym could actually, that fitness, that strength could be, like you said, giving you the freedom to hike, bike, swim, garden, play with your kids, lift whatever you want physically. And so yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. I mean, it depends on the person, but if, if your thing is going to the gym every day, then you should have the strength to be able to go to the gym. And if you want to try something new and work with a new trainer, then you should have the strength to be able to do that without getting hurt. And that's my definition of strength. I love it. So let's go, let's transition into a very specific type of strength, pelvic floor strength. Before we talk about um, how that integrates with training, can you kind of give us a definition? What is the pelvic floor? Um, why is it so important? The pelvic floor is basically, I call the the pelvic diaphragm because it works with the respiratory diaphragm in creating a nice solid um, protective foundation for your body. It should be strong and solid enough to be able to do anything you want to, anything you want to be able to do with your arms or legs. And it creates the foundation. So it is essentially just from an anatomical standpoint, it's a group of muscles that work in concert with one another inside sort of the pelvic ring. Yes. And I, I think the idea of like a pelvic diaphragm is really good, you know, being kind of the bottom. I think a lot of people think of like their core as just their abs, but more and more people are starting to think of the core as like this entire three-dimensional cylinder. It's a container. The top and yes. the bottom and a container. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but I would, th I think that probably the most often forgotten or neglected is like the bottom of the container, mm -hmm. which if you think Absolutely. about any sort of a container, if you leave the bottom off, it holds nothing. Nothing. If you look at a skeletal model of your pelvis, there's a big giant hole in the bottom <laughs> and the pelvic floor holds all everything that's above that hole in. And you can't think of the pelvic floor as a separate muscle, like your biceps move your elbow so you can lift something, your quadriceps length, uh, extend your knee so that you can kick or you can pedal, or you can run. It does not a single muscle that works by itself. It can't work by itself. It has to work with and always works and influences all the muscles around it. The um, respiratory diaphragm, the psoas, the hip flexors, the lats, the pectorals, the back muscles, the rectus abdominis, every one of those muscles, anything that has any contact, which is pretty much everything in the body because everything is connected by fascia or connective tissue one way or another is all influenced by and influenced um, influences on the pelvic floor. So are there common causes of pelvic floor dysfunction, both sort of, well, let's just start with that common causes of pelvic floor dysfunction. Yes. Pelvic floor dysfunction. I mean, the most common being childbirth. 
Um, but anytime you exert a force on the pelvic floor, just like you would if you exerted a force on any type of muscle, is going to cause it to to work. And if you have an unequal force that's or a force that's not equalized, it's going to um, going to disrupt the normal function of the pelvic floor. What do you mean by not equalized? Let's take, for example, um, weightlift. So if you're weightlifting and putting a large force, um, like a Valsalva, for instance, if you're holding your breath while you lift a heavy weight, you're putting a lot of extra force on that, on the pelvic floor. And if that's not balanced by um, other muscles around it, um, the respiratory diaphragm, or the back muscles, or um, the larger muscle groups, then you're going to cause a, an unequal strain, just like you would any other muscle. Okay. So it's kind of like common terms, like imbalance, or I like the idea of like an energy leak where the, like with, when, when you have a lot of different parts of your body that are being called upon to either stabilize or exert force, you tend to have issues in the ones that are not kind of up to par in terms of their level of function or underdeveloped compared to other things. Um, and so correct me if I'm wrong, obviously half the population doesn't have to worry about childbirth sitting like a lot of like just a sedentary lifestyle. Does that have any sort of bearing on pelvic floor strength? Cause I know it has a lot of impact on just abdominal and core strength in general, because most of the time we don't have to use those anytime we're sitting with a backrest, right? Like nothing, nothing else really in the abdominal region is needing to work because the chair or the couch is kind of doing that for us. Does that also hold true with the pelvic floor? Uh, yes, it does. And that's another way of looking at an imbalance because when you are seated, seated, you're essentially folded in half. And so the muscles in the front will be shorter than the muscles in the back. And so then when you go to stand, the muscles in the back are now twice as long as the muscles in front. And there you have your imbalance. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so how might the imbalances or dysfunctions kind of manifest? What are the, what are some of the, maybe like the subtle signs and symptoms that might trigger someone to think maybe I should pursue strengthening or addressing my pelvic floor. And then we can get into how to do that. But, you know, being that you and I are both physical therapists and, you know, you and I both, I think, would err on the side of saying that we would rather help people prevent serious injuries and dysfunction versus just wait till something bad happens and then try and fix it. What are, what are kind of the early signs and symptoms that might tip someone off? Like, Hey, I should get on top of this. Low back pain being the number one. Okay. Which is 90% of people have low back pain at some point. Yeah. That um, is telling you that you have an imbalance. Some part of some muscle or some something is exerting an, an unequalized or an abnormal force on the vertebra of the low back. Okay. What else? Low back pain, one tip off, anything else that might cue someone like, hey, my pelvic floor may be where I'm kind of uh, my weak link. Tight hips. Um, hips that are that feel really tight. You've got pain in the front of your hips. Um, hamstring. Um, some, some pain that feels like hamstring pain in the butt and obviously, um, leaking, um, incontinence with sneezing, coughing, lifting, running, um, incontinence doesn't just happen with, um, 
postpartum, it happens with obviously with weightlifters. There's actually a um, Norwegian study that I was that's actually just came out, I think this year or last year. Um, 47% of powerlifters six, have experienced incontinence. And that's huge. <laughs> and that means there's a big, there's, there's a, I don't, I, uh, mm, there's a big, what'd you call it? A power leak in learning how to power lift because that shouldn't be happening. Right. And so I'm glad that you said that, that last part, that shouldn't be happening because I think there's two ways to interpret research like that. It could be, well, 47%, that's nearly half. I guess this is normal. Yeah. Versus someone with a little more trained eye saying like, no, no, no. Like <laughs> that'd be like saying if, 50% of powerlifters suffered uh, a torn bicep that you should just expect to tear your bicep and there's nothing you can do about it, which is, you know, everyone, you'd get laughed out of the room if you said that, but it'd be the same percentage. Uh, I think pelvic floor stuff and, and kind of incontinence, especially for female athletes with a deadlift or a squat and having like peeing on the platform that has been normalized in some positive ways in terms of like, not letting that stop you from lifting, but yeah. that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be addressed. That doesn't mean it couldn't be improved. Um, at least like your threshold could go up, right? Yeah. Like you should, maybe, maybe you have some sort of incontinence, like urinary incontinence at 96% or above of your one RM or when you try and lift something you've never lifted before, but it shouldn't be, you know, from your second warm up all the way through your last lift. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I'd agree with that. Like, I think that it shouldn't happen at all. And if it does happen, then you have a leak in the system and you're for one, I mean, you can look at it as you're not actually lifting your potential. That weight where you start to leak is where you, you can identify I have a leak in my system. And if I fix this, I could actually lift more weight or more efficiently. And if whatever weight is your one rep max and you're leaking at that point, then that means if you fix that leak, then you that will no longer be your one rep max. That can be your five rep max, or you'll be able to lift more weight um, from more reps. Um, and that, so it, it's a way of identifying a, a weak spot. That's powerful. I think that, so, you know, if I'm thinking about it kind of from my wheelhouse as a powerlifter, powerlifting coach, member at a powerlifting gym, it is super common in training lifts, in competitions, again, for, especially with female athletes, for them to pee on the platform. Um, and I think a way in, because this is an uncomfortable topic, obviously, this is different than like, hey, you need to work on more triceps, you know, mm -hmm. to say you need to work on something to help you not pee on the platform. That's a, just, just a hard conversation to have. It's a hard thing to think about, I think, beginning to train. It's also most people, including myself, as we speak right now, I wouldn't know how to counsel an athlete where to start with that. Mm -hmm. But I think the way in the door is to say, look, you're actually, this is an indication that you could be performing better, right? It could be, absolutely, and I think people would understand that with most other muscles, again, whether it's a bicep or a pec or like man, every time I get to a certain percentage on my squat, like I get this mild adductor pain and strain and I feel like I can't go heavier. And I, people would understand like I could squat more if I could just get my adductors stronger 
and then they have an idea of how to get started. I think that idea that being on the platform or having urinary incontinence with a Valsalva maneuver, um, holding your breath basically and pushing, bearing down as you lift, that could be an indication that there are some accessory movements you could do in your training that will not only help you with the incontinence, but will literally put more pounds on the bar or put more, you know, take seconds off your, your time or whatever. Right. A way of looking at it, an argument I get as a sports orthopedic physical therapist is, um, is, well, I'm, I feel like I'm lifted. I've lifted more weight than I ever have. I'm like winning these competitions. If it works, don't, if it, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay. Well, I look at it as, okay, you're lifting that weight and you're winning those competitions, but at what cost? What, what cost, if, if not today, then what cost to your joints and your muscles over time? And how is that affecting your body um, now and in the future? Um, because you're now you've identified you're a power leak. And so you're reaching that max weight at a cost. And like what I um, tell like my cyclists, because I do um, with my bike fittings is they're like, okay, well, I'm winning these competitions and I'm, I'm getting this, this speed. Um, like looking at their bike and saying, okay, well, this, this is inefficient. You have a hole in your system here and you could be more efficient here. You could use, use your glutes more, for instance. And so you're winning that competition, but at what cost? The cost of you, okay, you can't enter another competition for another six weeks because you have to, you have to recover. And so if you are able to reach your max potential uh, more efficiently, um, so it may be the same weight or the same speed, but if you're there more efficiently, you have less of a cost of getting there. One way that just popped into my mind to think about that is kind of like that good to great concept. You know, you might be winning, but could you be winning by more? I think about it kind of like sleep or nutrition or whatever. When people say like, no, I feel, I feel really good on six and a half hours of sleep. It's like, well, that's just because you don't know how you'd feel on seven and a half hours. It might actually be better. Right, you just don't exactly. know. And the other way that I think is important is with that, that that concept of the power leak or the energy leak with a, and if that weak spot is your pelvic floor, that is percentage points more of the effort that is having to be distributed out into your glutes, into your adductors, into your hip flexors, into all the other things that hold onto your pelvis. Right. So if it, you know, 2% more strain on all those other muscles, you know, that causes that issue with the low back pain you mentioned, the tight right. hips you mentioned, the six week recovery that could be four or five. Again, you just don't know. You think it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but it is broke. <laughs> yeah. Your body is telling you, Hey, something is not working as efficiently as it could be. Mm -hmm. And, and I like this conversation where this is going to, because like the research you're talking about, you know, a lot of, I feel like strength and conditioning and physical therapy research, things that we think about as clinicians that the general population, general population doesn't think about is kind of that idea of, so let's say, let's say you end up like you're winning competitions at 35. Obviously you don't have a time machine. You can't fast forward to see what you're going to feel like at 55. Yeah. But because as you said earlier, whether it's fascia, connective tissue, whatever, 
neurologically, like we are, our entire body is interconnected structurally and substructurally. So that little two to 3% extra strain on your adductors, well, some of those adductors connect to your knee, whereas the pelvic floor musculature doesn't. So it's, if you've got one, one to 2% more strain on your medial knee for 20 years, training 200 days a year and racing five times, it's reasonable to think like by addressing pelvic floor and other core stability issues, you could be reducing your chances of knee pain 20 years down the road. But most people, exactly. most people in everything, finances, health, everything else, we wait till there's something catastrophic and then we try and panic and, and fix it or wish we could go back in time versus ever thinking about how could we go forward. Right. And that's where I think like this urinary incontinence um, is an indication. Like it's, it's a, it's the marquee. It's a, it's a stop sign. It's a yield sign of your body telling you, Hey, something's not right. It's not efficient. Something else is you're getting here at a cost. And so instead of seeing that as normalized, like, Oh, this is just something that happens. We need to start seeing it as a red flag. Like, Oh, okay. This is giving, this is a message for something that I can't see. So it's a red flag for something that's silently going on. And so it's a very, it's, I mean, the body's great. The body gives us little warning signals um, to tell us when something's not right. And that's what this needs to be seen as. Instead of a check engine, it's like a check engine light. Exactly. Exactly. So let's transition to, um, okay, I've got some back pain. My hips are tight. I do experience some degree of incontinence and I'm going to, we'll just stick in the, the realm of powerlifting because it makes me feel like I know what I'm talking about. You pee on the platform at anything above 90% of your one rep max. I'm listening to this conversation. I've identified that I am the avatar that David and Michelle are talking about. What do I do? You go find a, or you talk to your coach and you're, you're as a coach, you should have resources (laughs) or you talk to your friends and find a pelvic floor therapist. Um, preferably I would, I mean, if I, if it were me looking for a pelvic floor therapist, I'd be looking for someone who specializes in athletes because there's a pelvic floor therapist that treats postpartum women and, um, which is very similar but they're not looking at the same strains on the system. Like as a pelvic floor therapist who treats postpartum women, I'm just trying to get you to be able to like laugh without pain. Whereas if I'm a sports um, physical therapist treating pelvic floor, then I'm trying to get you to lift 90% one rep max without peeing. So it's a com- yeah. very different things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then if you're up for it, what might that first session with a pelvic floor PT look like for an athlete? So you shouldn't be afraid of it. (laughs) Um, You're not going to have like hands on, like get on the table, internal work right off that, right off the bat with that first visit. Um, You'll go and just like any sort of physical therapy, you will um, uh, have your appointment. You could even do a, um, like a consultation, just go in and talk to them. Hey, this is what I'm experiencing. Um, do, and they'll ask you questions, um, about your pelvic floor, um, questions, um, pertaining to your pelvic floor, like, 
Um, do you have incontinence at any other time? Like, do are you always looking for a bathroom when you first get home from any sort of excursion, like going into the grocery store? As soon as you stick your key in the door, do you feel the urge to pee? Little things like that. Um, do you have pain in the pelvic floor? Do you have pain putting in a tampon? Do you have pain when you urinate? Do you have pain when you have sex? Do you have, and then if those are the questions, it's they get more into more detail. Um, and, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, that's, that's fine. We deal with these questions as physical pelvic floor therapists every day. We see you're not the first person. <laughs> and so, um, but you should, um, you know, they're there to um, really identify what's happening and say, is there some way you're, you know, it could be something as simple as changing your breathing. Like, do you hold your breath when you go and lift that weight? And um, if so, let's try some breathing exercises. So um, that's the first place I go with my with my patients. Um, I'll do a full examination to look at their outer systems, to look at the alignment of their spine and their hips um, to identify anything that may be going on with their muscular um, or musculoskeletal system just to notice any, um, any imbalances or scoliosis, looking at just basically looking at the body as the whole, as a whole and seeing how all the pieces fit together. Um, and then we go from there, just sort of identifying what the, what the problem may be and then further identifying it, um, the causes. Gotcha. And I want to backtrack just a little bit more like historically really quick for some context. Cause I think one of the things that never, it never fails to shock me when I'm reminded of this. So pelvic floor PT is a relatively new area within physical therapy. Strangely. Yes. yes. So strangely, I, I, I yes. don't know why women's health in general is a relatively new thing within the healthcare landscape. And one of the reasons why that is, is because up until recently, women were never subjects in any medical research. Even the research, even the research about women's bodies was actually done on male subjects because the assumption, what maybe 50 years ago or possibly less, the assumption was women are just men with, pesky hormones. Yeah. And we'd see anything that has to do with, well, women weren't doing powerlifting and stuff for one. So that wasn't even part no, of it. No, they were having babies the and then being diagnosed question. with hysteria. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But having their uterus seeing, is removed. <laughs> yeah. And, Based um, on research and, you, on men. <laughs> and you talk to women and even still today, like, oh, I, you know, wetting yourself when you laugh or pee or jump is considered normal after having a baby, that's just normal. That's just what happens. Um, diastasis, diastasis is just normal. Um, you know, pain with sex is just something that happens and it's all, it's all considered normal parts of being a woman and normal parts of having a baby. Um, and the more we learn about, um, the body, we realize it doesn't have to be that. I guess that's part of the thing is we didn't realize it didn't have to be that way. Just it, felt it's sort of baby conf- and confusing the word, the idea of something being common for something being normal. Like we were exactly. talking about with powerlifting, like 47% of women like pee on the platform. 
okay, that's yeah. common, not necessarily normal. Exactly. Hey guys, quick break and we'll be right back to the conversation with Dr. Gilpin. Our partner on today's show is Barbell Rehab. So Dr. Gilpin and I, we've been talking about training, physical therapy, powerlifting. So it only makes sense to make a quick break and tell you about Barbell Rehab. Created by Dr. Michael Mash, a physical therapist and barbell coaching expert, Barbell Rehab is an education platform built to help fitness and rehab professionals improve their management of clients with pain or mobility limitations, specifically targeting those who train the big barbell lifts, the squat, deadlift, bench press, and overhead press. Dr. Mash has created two amazing online courses, the Barbell Rehab Workshop and Strength Training the Post-Operative Client. These are online courses that you can work through at your own pace from the comfort of your own home or knock out a couple modules in between clients or patients at the gym or clinic. I personally use strategies from the Barbell Rehab Workshop every single week when I work with my powerlifting clients. Our listeners can take $25 off either of these online courses by using the code STRONGER25 at checkout. All you have to do is hit the link in today's show notes to take you to barbellrehab.com and then use the code STRONGER25, all lowercase, no spaces, STRONGER25 to get $25 off either of those awesome online courses available from Barbell Rehab. All right, let's get back to the show. But it's also like looking at like what we around like knees and running we used to say oh running causes you know if you um, run you'll have arthritis in your knees and running causes knee pain well we know now well in common studies that it's not running itself that causes knee pain and that running can actually be good for your knee knees it just is all how what you're doing when you're not running (laughs) yeah and we can say oh well is knee pain just a consequence of running or is there are there things we can do to fix it and we've identified as research goes on and we learn more about the body is that oh there's things we can fix it we can do to fix it um the occupation of physical therapy is relatively new as well um and that's how more and more research is coming about and we're learning more about the body is because as the field of physical therapy evolves Um, because physical therapists way back in our infancy were basically, um, just nursing assistants, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, got the body moving, but as we've evolved, we've become human movement specialists and we, um, learn and identify more of the reasons of, you know, doctors are meant to diagnose like, okay, this is, this is what's happening. Let me give you something to make you feel better. We'll give you a pessary. We'll give you pads. We'll, we'll, um, do a sling operation to, to hold your bladder up later down the road. We'll, you know, we'll do surgery. So we're fixing the, um, we're fixing the symptoms. Whereas physical therapy is all has all revolved around like, okay, this is a symptom of something else. So what is the cause and, and let's identify the cause and let's fix it. Right. 
we're not just going in and turning off the check engine light manually, but not actually figuring right. out why it came on in the first place. Right, exactly. It's like the alignment in your car where your your tires are all worn down. You're, okay, well, I have one tire wearing out. You don't just change the tires. Over and over and over. Over and that over one and tire. over. Yeah, which is basically how you know modern medicine has been. Um, well, that's just the consequence. That's just what happens when you drive a car. One one wheel can get worn down more than the other. How do you get people to buy more tires? Make yeah. one side fucked up. <laughs> exactly. No, you go in and you identify the cause. You set up diagnostics. You identify an alignment issue and you fix the alignment. And our basically physical therapists are the alignment technician. <laughs> yeah. Let me hook you up. I, d- I do wish that we could just like you know, plug something into a person and it would run all the diagnostic tests and then it would tell us what to do. It's a little more com- complex than that still. <laughs> well, we are not mach- we are not machines. And that's something else you have to realize too, is something that worked for someone else may not work for you because you are not a machine. And right. everything, and when you look at the powerlifting, the, um, the, when we go back to the urinary continence powerlifting, it could be because you had a baby or it could be because you had a dental, abdominal surgery. It could be cut. Ca- could be because you put too much strain on your body too fast. Those three things have very different um, fixes. Gotcha. I want to generalize in a second, or actually right now, and you can feel free to just check me if I, if you think I'm wrong, but would you think, do you think it's fair to say that anyone who trains with sort of a sport specific or actually, and just anyone who, who physically trains should be spending some time working on pelvic floor strength. Like, is that kind of a universal thing? The way that we would say anybody who's going to lift anything should have some sort of core stability work built into their program. Yes. And no, because it doesn't have to be something as specific as, um, pelvic floor working on pelvic floor strength you don't say like okay yeah you should add squats like it doesn't have to happen in isolation no um and it's not as easy as just doing something like that like just adding an exercise um but it should be it has to do with efficiency of movement and the number one fix that i've recognized is just changing breathing and how people breathe and um i have a little saying e e for effort the exhales on your effort so whenever you're exerting effort you should exhale e e e <laughs> and um i think for a long time in the powerlifting um vernacular it was hold your breath and push your belly out and you know hold your core there's still a lot of practitioners who say like push your belly out and pretend like you're getting punched like hold your breath in and like like hold it. And that is the opposite of what the pelvic floor should be doing. Sure. That gives you a nice, solid, big, solid mass of a belly, but it it's not, it's pushing, actually pushing out on the pelvic floor and stretching those muscles and, and straining them. And so um, it can be you know, very easily, I would say, in going back to your question of should everyone be working on the pelvic floor? Everyone should learn to breathe correctly as a foundation. Sure. So, yes. And if you breathe correctly, then I feel like a good portion of those pelvic floor issues will 
will never come about. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, personally, I do still use some of that terminology when I'm helping people figure out how to like brace on a squat or a deadlift. Because what I found is a lot of people tend to do what looks more like a posterior pelvic tilt. Mm-hmm. And then they drive their the front of their rib cage down. So they basically yeah. do like a crunch while standing up. Yeah. And that's how they brace. And then that leads to like early butt wink inability to maintain like pelvic position as they drop into a squat because you've already used up some of your relative hip flexion by rotating your pelvis around. Um, and that, so I have to, as a as a vertebra disc, I'm going no. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you can keep it locked in in whatever position you're in. <laughs> it's it's rounded but static under our load. Um, but I I do have people lay down, you know, move their fingers halfway between their belly button and their sides, push in. Imagine pushing out. But what I add is, and what I so what I typically see is. People can do that. They can push their fingers out with their abs, but they hold their breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what I try and get people to do, and again, like I would love to learn from you right now. What I tell people to do is, can you maintain a conversation while pushing your fingers out and letting them sink back in and pushing your fingers out? So it's muscular independent of breath holding and trying to get that 360 degree expansion of everything from front sides and back. However, I don't necessarily think as much about the top and bottom of the canister while I'm teaching someone how to brace. I don't have good cues for that. I think that's probably harder to feel. Yeah. Um, it's tricky, but I think that, um, I often just use the cue of, um, exhale. And then what should happen when you exhale is the, um, it's like tightening a, um, a hammock. So when you inhale, you're relaxing into it. The hammock stretches. When you exhale, you pull the hammock tight. And and you're you're saying inhale, inhale. So again, I'm going to think powerless. I'm just going to think about a squat in my mind the the cadence would be an inhale and then an eccentric or a lowering phase and then as you start to exert that concentric force standing back up you begin to let the air out as you exhale yes and so that as you exhale you're tightening up that the hammock or the pelvic sling to allow you to put more force into the body gotcha and it's not just like I'm going to open my mouth and let all my air out and then try and stand up. It no, is it's it's a nice while you are contracting yeah. the primary mm-hmm. movers. Gotcha. Yeah. And that allows you to use those to create just create a nice stable base for those primary movers. Got it. Got it. Well, I'll be trying that today. Um, do you have any like case studies or kind of personal examples, obviously without mentioning patients' names, but I find it really helpful, especially with topics like this to have one or two sort of real world examples, you know, person A experienced this, we did this for treatment and here was the outcome. (laughs) Getting patients to trust this exhale and um, this breathing is is tricky because they're like, no, I'm going to pee, I'm going to pee. 
going to pee. I'm like, just trust me. I didn't pee. I didn't pee. Wait, I didn't pee. (laughs) And it happens all the time. Um, I had a patient that I've been working with for a while who's made gains in everything. She's a runner, um, granted, but um, she's made gains in everything in her strength and and in isolation, we're able to um, get her to to stabilize her core with you know, deadlifts and squats and all that stuff. But she was still having um, incontinence when she ran. Um, and part of the problem is that she's so afraid of peeing that she's holding her pelvic floor super tight when she's running. And so the cueing is, okay, I want you to go out and run. And I want you to wear a pad or whatever it is that makes you feel confident. Because if you start peeing, I want you to just go with it. Just run. And so you're learning to relax and get your breathing back coordinated with what you're doing. So that was the cue so that she could relax. And then once that happens, she'll be able to her body will, will not get the message. Oh, I need to tighten up and I need to, to just hold my breath here. I need to actually relax and then the system will normalize. So that was a good cue for her. Got it. And that, that sounds like kind of an example of what we were talking about earlier, where it's probably someone who's saying like, no, things are going really well. Like as long as I kind of hold my breath and do what I need to do to stop myself from peeing like i'm running really fast and i'm doing really well it's like but could be better and i think you know holding your breath and running like when you just say that out loud that doesn't really compute (laughs) like that seems like it would limit your performance yeah (laughs) trying to brace and hold things tight while having like being able to open up your stride also just when you say it out loud and you kind of think about like those two things just wouldn't really work together. Um, and then again, circling back to what you were saying, like at what cost, right? Like at what long-term cost are you overcompensating via this prolonged bracing and breath holding? And like, what are the kind of the downstream effects that you may not feel now, but we can kind of discern through understanding of anatomy and and professional experience are probably coming down the road if we don't start to address this now. Right. Those conversations are hard though, because it's usually at least for a little bit, you kind of have to convince people to maybe sacrifice a little bit of short-term performance or you have to convince someone like, I want you to just pee while you run. That's a hard sell. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that just right away, but we've learned all these things. The last thing was learning like, okay, it's like, let's normalize. Let's get your brain back in line with your, with your breathing. One thing that I loved seeing from one of the powerlifters that I've worked with is she mentioned on her Instagram page during the lockdown of the pandemic. She's like, I don't have heavy, I'm not at the gym, so I don't have heavy weights. And she's competitive. She's a competitive um, powerlifter. A competitive bodybuilder, not a powerlifter, but a bodybuilder. Um, I don't have the opportunity to lift weights. And at first, like that was really bothering me that I was going to lose strength. But over this time, I've been able to really identify, or I've been really able to focus on the details and 
um, stabilization in my joints and to lift better, more efficiently. And now that I'm at the back at the gym, I'm, I'm lifting heavier weight than I was before. And that's exactly what I want to impart on these, on these power lifters that need physical therapy or on my athletes that need to just take a break for a minute, just step back, focus on the details and you, you will, it, you will make exponential gains as you return to your sport just by being able to focus on the details and stabilize because it's so easy for us to just get in a groove and go and those big muscles of the body they want to they want to go they want to do everything and they will you know when whenever you aren't able to stabilize those big muscles are like let me do it i'll do it okay let's do it and they we allow them to take over and they will take over and those stabilizers are <laughs> yeah you have something to say about it <laughs> those stabilizers um they're quiet they're quiet little bees yeah and they will be they will be overtaken by the big personalities in the room <laughs> those bigger muscles our bodies are really um, amazing at getting things done. Like yes, if something needs to are, be done, we'll get it done. Uh, whether our bodies that means... are built for survival in the moment. Mm -hmm. We weren't built for the long game. We didn't evolve for the long game. We, we evolved because we were able to be the most powerful in the moment. Yep. Yep. Straight and, up survival. And we, that could be, you know, now that happens with groceries or unloading the dishes or whatever it is like we got to get it done. So we'll find a way to get it done. You know, exactly. The future, will, the future will be the future and we'll deal with that later. And exactly. Luckily now we have the ability that our life isn't just surviving moment to moment for most of us, at least um, who are fortunate enough not to live in that sort of a scenario. Um, and we have the ability to dig a little deeper, figure out how to do things more efficiently and we have, um, you know, we're intelligent beings, so we can look beyond the, the moment of now, which I think is, um, as far as living being go, beings go, I don't know of any other beings that can actually look into the future and identify how, how is this going to affect me in the future? So, yeah. you know, take advantage of that, humans. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Create your own future because you can see it, at least you can predict some of it. Um, before we move into like a closing question, I do want to just touch on like men and pelvic floor strength right. because it's not unique to women. It's not uniquely anatomical to women. Um, yes, our anatomy is different. And, you know, we're not going to have, like we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, like postpartum pelvic floor, you know, right. therapy. But am I am I right in guessing that some of the telltale symptoms are the same? low back pain, tight hips, um, frequently needing to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. That's all the yeah. same. Yeah. All the same. And you have, you still have a hole. Um, it's, it's just a different type of hole. You have your anus and you have your penis and the pelvic anatomy is the same. And, um, the way you can identify dysfunction a lot of times is that having to pee all the time you put force on the prostate. 
Um, and that can, and a uh, telltale sign is having to urinate constantly um, and not being able to hold it. Um, you can kind of do a little test. It's, this is not an exercise, so don't do it all the time. But when you're urinating, can you stop the flow of urine? If you can't stop the flow of urine, you have no control over your pelvic floor. And um, that's just one good way of identifying whether or not you have an issue. I've had a, I had a competitive basketball player who was having some hip and low back pain. And we're like, we need to look at your pelvic floor. He's like, what, what? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, can I asked him that? Can you stop the flow of urine um, when you pee? And he's like, I don't know. And he like, the next day he's like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't stop like it. Easiest, Once I start, I the can't. easiest homework. I want you to try this. <laughs> I can't. He's like, is that even possible? It's like, I don't, it doesn't feel possible. I'm like, yeah, you have a pelvic floor dysfunction. And I think that's what's causing your back and hip pain. And lo and behold, yes, we worked on his pelvic floor and um, he got better. So that's what was happening. He was just, and he was a basketball player. So he wasn't lifting big weights, but um, somewhere along the lines of his um, training, he probably had a mismatch between his breathing and, and, um, and effort. And yeah, also just working. Yeah. A lot of plyometrics, a lot of just force, um, bigger muscles, the, the hips, um, glutes, quads, riding or overpowering those stabilizers. Is that test the stopping the flow of urine? Is that applicable to women as well? Yeah. It's usually you, that you, um, have some leakage and that's your first indication. But if you don't have leakage and you want, or like, Hey, I'm, I think I'm going to go start training for a competition. See if you can stop the flow of urine. And if you can't, then you need to, you know, I need to start working with somebody before it comes a problem. I love that. I mean, that's, that's been an underlying theme to this whole conversation, like deal with it before it becomes a bigger problem. Exactly. Yeah. Use that human brain. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I can't I, stop myself would, in the middle of a urine flow. Like what's going to happen when I try and deadlift 400 pounds? What exactly. happens when I try and do a 400 meter hurdle race and jump and land over and over and over? Yeah. And I think that my biggest plea um, in this whole conversation would not be to the athletes themselves, but to the coaches of have this discussion with your, with your um, clients um, talk to them. Don't look at huge strength gains right away. Look at identify ability to stabilize, focus on the stabilizers, focus on efficiency and being able to lift lightweight. Good. Look at quality because if you don't start with quality in movement, you're, you may make your, your goals, but again, at what cost? So my plea is really to those coaches to identify these things and have these conversations with your clients before it becomes a, pro a problem. Yeah, and, I, and I will redouble my yourself. efforts as a coach for sure. Yeah, and educate yourself. What is how? Why is this important? Uh, why is this important? And how can I how can I help my clients um, become better movers so that this doesn't become a problem? So for anyone listening, if they wanted to connect with you to ask follow-up questions, um, to learn more, what are the best places for people to do that? Um, I have a website um, where you can find me. It's mgilpindpt.com. Um, that's M as in Michelle, G-I-L-P as in Paul, I-N, um, dpt, doctor of physical therapy.com. 
Um, so there's information about me and how to contact me um, at that place. Um, you Sweet. can. I'm also on in- Instagram as mgdpt. I think. Let me double check. <laughs> I, I believe you're right. We'll put it. We'll definitely put it all in the show notes too. Oh, it's yeah. It's Doctor MGPT. Doctor MGPT on Instagram. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm posting a lot about what I'm doing and, and little things there. Um, so Dr. MGPT is a, is a, on Instagram and then okay. um, my website and Perfect. All right. Well, let's move closing question. Um, we opened with your personal definition of strength in closing. The question is, can you identify any area that you consider a weakness that could be personal, professional, anything else, performance, um, something that you're working on improving and maybe have a goal of eventually turning into a strength? I'm always trying to learn more. Like I said, the um, surprisingly, the field of physical therapy and and understanding physical movement and the kinematics of the body is a relatively new science and um the more i learn the less i know (laughs) so (laughs) that is and just being able to always be up on the latest research and um and identifying better better ways to make my patients better is always is always a, a struggle because being a mom and you know having a full schedule and and being a you know a good friend and a wife and all those things is always is always a challenge but i always try to find i do try to find time um it i try find time because i'm excited about it it's interesting to me and i love seeing my patients get better and if they're not getting better then i'm like okay why what what more do i need to know and so then I go and do the research, but, um, yeah, that's always, it's, it, it'll, it, it'll always be something I'm trying to catch up on. I think that's good. You know, you're, you're kind of like, uh, the athlete where you're not, you're not, um, content with I'm doing good and everything's going well, like, couldn't it be better? Maybe even if your patients are getting better, could they be getting better faster? Could they be getting better to a level that I'm not even sure, I didn't know was available to them. Um, yeah. For me, good enough is never good enough. Good. Well, your patient should be happy about that. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, uh, focusing on me, even though you had a little one running around all over the place. And I'm, I'm holding a banana in my hand and there are squished blueberries. <laughs> How long all have you been the holding a banana in your hand? I, I don't know. For <laughs> it's like been a while. <laughs> I also have my, I also have my, um, my husband's cycling shoe in my lap and one of them on my foot because he insisted that I put his cycling shoes on. So yeah, it's, um, you know, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is the quintessential juggling many balls at once. (laughs) Yeah. That's incredible. I've never had a podcast guest with like one of their husband's shoes on one foot, a banana in one hand. (laughs) I saw a blueberry container at some point on the video. Oh, and the rest of them are on the floor. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're squished on the floor. And right now he's putting all of his Cheerios in my coffee. So, Well, and yet you knocked the conversation out of the park. So I, I very much appreciate your time. <laughs> I'll let you get to uh, cleaning now. 
Yeah, that's what I'm doing next. <laughs> All right. Have an awesome Thanks, day. David. I really love being um, here. And, uh, and uh, I'll look forward to hearing, hearing more from you. Hello again. It's David. Back to wrap things up and give you your action plan for the week. I always learn something when I record a podcast. Every conversation opens my eyes to things I wasn't aware of, or it sharpens my focus on something I want to know more about. Today's conversation had elements of both. It made me think more deeply about how to have important conversations with the athletes and patients I work with, and it opened my eyes to how the pelvic floor is connected to the diaphragm and therefore impacted by how we breathe. I also never think of the pelvic floor when a client mentions tight hips or a tight low back. I am literally a better clinician and a better coach because of today's conversation, and that is a great feeling. For all of you guys, your action plan for the week is this. It's pretty self-explanatory. I just want you to stop and think about whether you have any of the early signs and symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. These could be new symptoms or long-standing symptoms that you've always been led to believe were just normal. They could be related to lifting weights, running, or just being honest about how frequently and how urgent your trips to the bathroom are. You can even take the P-test that Michelle mentioned to see if you can stop the flow midstream. If you identify any of these signs or symptoms, be proactive. I cannot emphasize this enough. Be proactive. Our healthcare system may be set up to treat problems only after they get serious, but you have the power to break out of that model by being your own strongest advocate and finding healthcare professionals like Michelle who are committed to helping you go from feeling good to feeling great. That's it for this week. Until next time, I wish you strength and good health.